Well, hello, everybody. Um, if we haven't met yet, my name is Louis Menjavar. I'm the Associate Teaching Young Adults Pastor here. Welcome to Cornerstone. Uh, we, in a moment, are going to continue our service here and move into our uh, continuing our fall series we're calling I Am, which is really positioning us to hear what Jesus has to say about himself, eight statements, all describing um, who he is in his own words. And uh, we're going to be hearing from a member of our own community, David Brickner, um, in a couple moments here. But um, first, I uh, want to address something that some of us may be aware of, which is that a beloved member of our community and member of our staff um, un somewhat unexpectedly passed away this week. And um, Letha Nell entered our doors in 2008 and shortly after that came to a place of embracing Jesus as her own savior and ended up being baptized and she distinctly I remember wanted to serve as a greeter um, in the door and she would have been the one that if you've been coming here for some time she would have been the one that would have handed you one of these handouts and her smile had the capacity to light up a room you know uh, she was a beautiful person um, in every way. About a little over a year ago, she ended up getting married to another member of our staff community, Vincent Now, and they had quite a celebration. Their relationship was a true love story. Um, it was something that we got the privilege of being a part of and being able to see, um, being able to kind of just witness, you know, something special unfold right in front of us. And they were a couple that, um, and Letha in particular, was a person who loved to enjoy life, took advantage of any opportunity to do so, um, and, uh, you know, was one who spread joy all around them. You know, they, 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 they had fun. They lived joyfully. She did, especially, as well as did Vincent. But, um, you know, about five weeks ago, they ended up having their baby boy, Hosea, and it was a beautiful baby. Um, ended up going home and celebrating this significant chapter in her lives. And unfortunately, um, shortly after this, her blood pressure started rising to the point where um, it caused deterioration in her heart. And um, it was Thursday evening when she went home to be with the Lord. And, uh, and so many of us are grieving. We're mourning. And yet the scriptures tell us that though we mourn, we mourn not without hope. Because Jesus gives us the promise that we will see her again. And so, you know, our loss has become heaven's gain. And that's the truth. Heaven has gotten brighter because they have a good one in Aletha. She lived an amazing life. She really did. It's no exaggeration to say that any conversation you were a part of with Aletha was one you left encouraged and uplifted. There was no way you could leave Aletha's presence and not feel somewhat strengthened, um, feeling like what a privileged life is and every opportunity that's given to us. She was one who was empathetic in every which way. You know, she had a disability, but you wouldn't know it. Uh, she was confined to her wheelchair, but she never allowed that to define her. She was incredibly resilient, and she was unashamed of her love for people, and most of all, of her love for Jesus. She, she lived what Jesus said was the two greatest commandments. She truly did. It's no 
I know things are often said in moments like these, but this is not hyperbole. She loved people and she loved God with all her being. And so she has left us with a hole. We're missing her. There's no doubt about it. Her family misses her incredibly, but she also left us with an amazing legacy of a life well lived. In her own way, Letha was extraordinary. She was um, an inspiration. And so in moments like these, if I may, where we're reminded how fragile life is and uh, perhaps we're reminded of how the trivial things we get hung up on truly aren't that important. Perhaps we might, we might be encouraged and inspired to love people, to love those around us well, to love God, to embrace what he wants to do in our own lives. She, Aletha, was incredibly strong as well. Um, I mean, and she knew it too. Uh, <laughs> you didn't mess with Aletha. There was no crossing Aletha, you know. But she would tell you that her strength came from the grace of God in her life. She would tell you that it was God's spirit inside of her that has given her the capacity, any joy we might see on her, anything of life that we might see through her, she would say it herself. She would oftentimes remind me, by his grace, Lewis, by his grace. And so David's going to come, and he's going to continue our service, and um, we're going to hear perhaps an appropriate word. We had no idea but perhaps a word we must all be either reminded of or introduced to. But I'm going to pray, and we'll move forward together. Lord, um, I thank you that you are a God who is near to the brokenhearted. And a lot of times, um, we're confronted with things that cause us to question, cause us to doubt, cause us to wonder certain things. And a lot of times, Lord, we may not get the answer we want. No answer is satisfying. And yet you don't offer a trite answer. You, you offer yourself. You, you offer your own presence in the midst of the grieving in the morning. Uh, you said you came to comfort. You said that anyone who turns their face towards you is found by you. You said in time of trouble, you are very present. And so we turn our gaze towards you, God. As we have already done, we welcome you here. But we, we lift up not just our community, but we lift up especially Aletha's family. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that even now, wherever they may be, that in the midst of their mourning and their grieving, in the midst of what they might sense is their darkest hour, we pray that your hand would be near to them that you would bless them with something of your comforting spirit. We ask God that love that penetrates every other element of life would penetrate into their own heart. They would sense, even in the midst of their grief, something of a spark of joy and hope because of your promise. You said, Lord, and everything you said is so true, but you said that life is eternal when we embrace you, that the days we share here on earth are not the final days we have, but you give us many more in life eternal. One day we know we will see Aletha again. And we thank you, God. We thank you that even now, 
Perhaps Aletha is at her point of greatest wholeness. And perhaps now she is no longer inhibited. She may actually right now be walking in your own presence, even maybe dancing. For she is with you, the one she loves forever. And those of us who love you and love her will get to see her again. We thank you for that incredible promise, God. We pray for your blessing over the remainder of our time. May you help us remain open to what you want to say to us. May you truly be our strength as you were Aletha's. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's good to see you all and uh, to take us into, again, a consideration of one of the I Am statements. And I think it's hardly a coincidence that we at this season in our community have come to this statement. All of the other seven statements that Jesus made in John have a direct object to the verb. I am the bread of life we discussed and studied. I am the light of the world. I am the door was what we talked about last week, but this before Abraham was, I am. So when we are looking at that gulf between now and eternity, Jesus stands in the midst of it and says, I am, I am eternal. And because of that, the hope that Aletha had and we have is both now and forever. Jesus is much more than we ever could imagine him to be, and he makes that claim now in a way that challenges the people who were hearing it for the first time and has continued to challenge people up to the present day. And people, I think, have tried to minimize and compartmentalize and, uh, you know, patronize, if you will, the person of Jesus, but he doesn't allow that. And we get in, I mean, I grew up with the, the Doobie Brothers, you know, that song, Jesus is just all right with me. Jesus is just all right, oh yeah. Well, he's a lot more than just all right. And that's the challenge of this text. You know, C.S. Lewis said famously in Mere Christianity, the following, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, like, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept this claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said that sort of thing would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. And he goes on. And Jesus is not a liar and he's not a lunatic. He is in fact Lord. He is the great I am. And uh, making this statement really gets to the heart of whom God revealed himself to be from the very beginning. In fact, the backdrop to all of these I am statements, but especially this one, is found in Moses' introduction to God at the burning bush in Exodus 3. We have that on our handout if you turn to that right now. Exodus 
The profound nature of this claim, before Abraham was, I am, harkens back to this encounter where Moses is before the burning bush and he says to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That name has been the sacred name by which God has been known in covenant with Israel ever since. And it is basically a claim of self-existence. I am the eternal one. I am who I am. It's called by theologians the Tetragrammaton, which is kind of a strange name. It sounds like a cartoon superhero, you know, Tetragrammaton, you know. But uh, it's four Hebrew letters, Yud, He, Vuv, He, and we don't even know how to pronounce it. Yahweh, Jehovah is a guess, but you see there's no vowels in the original text. So we really don't know how to say his name. And because of that, in Jewish tradition, we don't. We don't pronounce that name when we come to it in reading the Hebrew Bible. We substitute Adonai, which is another name of God that means Lord. But this, I am that I am, is actually the same claim Jesus is making here in John. When they translated the Hebrew of the Exodus three passage into Greek, they used a, a way, a, a, a very definite way of speaking that was not common in Greek. Ego ami is how it's pronounced, and it basically means the same thing. I am that I am. And in all of Jesus' statements, he's using this same phrase, but especially in the way it's phrased, without a direct object, Jesus is shaking the foundations of the Jewish people who had been listening to him and wondering about him. And he was saying, I'm much more than you could ever imagine. Let's read the context of that statement. John 8, 51, in your handout. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Who can say that? Then the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon Abraham is dead and the prophets, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who was dead? And the prophets are dead, and who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God, yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Now this is a, a, a major conflict, obviously. You can see that from the language. There's, there's an intensity of exchange, and this has been actually going on for a long time. The whole of chapter 8 is this conversation that occurs in the temple at the Feast of Tabernacles, and it gets more and more heated with 
charges and counter charges and Jesus is standing right there and, and giving as good as he's getting and he's not backing down from these claims and it shakes the foundation of the people but who are these people John says the Jews but who else was in the temple who else was in Israel maybe the Romans but everybody those who loved him, those who followed him, his disciples, they were all Jews. And so the Jews is a specific phrase that John uses addressing Jewish leadership, and particularly the leadership in and around Jerusalem, the Judean leadership. And these are the ones that he's addressing primarily in the temple. And in the temple, the seat of power was given to a particular group of Judean leaders known as the Sadducees. The Sadducees had rule over the temple. And they were a unique group of people because they didn't believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in heaven. Some people say that's why they were so sad, you see. <laughs> but look at the first statement that Jesus makes. If, if nothing else, to just challenge these people. I'm so much greater and there's so much more than what you think you know. If anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Now for the Sadducees, that was an outrageously bold claim. It's outrageously bold on its own, but for these people in particular. And what is Jesus saying? That people don't, won't die physically? No, he's talking about eternal death. That there's a judgment to follow death, but if you know him, that judgment, you'll pass by. And you'll have life eternal. And who can give that but the one who says, I am the eternal one? Who can provide assurance of eternity other than the one who says, I am the one who holds eternity in the palm of my hand. I'm the one who created heaven and earth. I'm the one who parted the Red Sea. And I am the one who is speaking to you now. This man who walked, who ate, this person made these claims and it shook the people. Now there were even some in the midst of this group of the Jews that verse 31 of John 8 says there were Jews who believed in him. But they didn't understand either and they were getting offended. Jesus had said you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. And they said wait a minute these Jews who believe in the wait a minute you know we're, we're children of Abraham and we've never been slaves to anyone. How can what you say make us free? And so that's the conversation that's being continued here as well. They say, we know that you have a demon. That's a pretty radical charge. They're just not willing to understand what he's saying. Abraham is dead. The prophets are dead. And you say that we won't taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead and the prophets who are dead? Well, I guess he's saying that, isn't he? Who do you think you are, is basically what that phrase is. Who do you make yourself out to be? They were offended. You know, there's a, a doctrine of, the, of Judaism that was prevalent in that time, and it's still known today, and it's called um, zekut avot, which means the, the, the merits or the righteousness of the fathers. And whoever these people were, they all had familiarity with that notion that we're going to be okay 
because we're part of the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And all the good that they did in their lives is credited to us, to our account. And so we're okay. We don't need what you're offering. But Jesus pulls the rug out from under them because he's saying, you shouldn't be trusting in that. You should be trusting in me instead. What you're trusting in is not sufficient to give you the eternal life because only the one who is himself, the eternal one, I am, can do that for you. And all of us have the temptation to sink our roots into what we feel comfortable with. And we want to accommodate Jesus to that which makes us comfortable. And Jesus says to the Jewish people in the temple, that's not good enough. And he says the same thing to us today. We get, we're comfortable with religion. Religion says, do this and you'll be accepted. That's what the Jewish leadership said. Do this and you'll be accepted. Or you're accepted because of who you are, the merits of the fathers. But that's not the gospel, you see. The gospel says you are accepted in the eternal one. And therefore, you obey. And so this challenge, this debate goes on. Are you greater than our father Abraham and the prophets? Are you? Jesus picks up the challenge and says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He rejoiced because the honor that I am claiming for myself as the eternal one comes from God. You say you know God, but you don't. I do. And so I have the legitimacy to make this claim. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. What does he mean by that? Well, some would say that Jesus is claiming to be, uh, you know, around as long as Abraham was, 2,000 years ago. And that's exactly what the Jewish leadership think. They say when he says that, he says, but verse 57, you're not 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? So they think he's talking about the fact that he was, he was around during the time of Abraham. Abraham rejoiced to see my day because Abraham was alive back then, and that was my day. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not denying that he was around during Abraham's day. Some people say, well, Abraham perhaps looked over the portals of heaven and saw when Jesus was born and was rejoicing then. But I don't think that's even what Jesus is saying. There comes a point in our life when our heart leaps to understand who Jesus is. And that happened for Abraham at the most crucial moment of his need to trust in God. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we were in our Heroes of Faith uh, series and talked about Abraham being at the very pinnacle of his need for God, learning to trust. God said, take your son, Isaac, your only son whom you love, and journey with him to Mount Moriah and offer him there as an offering upon the altar. And Abraham obeyed, but imagine what he must have been going through as he made that journey and as he got up to the top of the mountain, as he bound his son with cords to the altar and lifted the knife to do the deed. And then imagine how his heart leapt 
as he heard the voice of the angel say, Abraham, Abraham, do not lift your hand against your son. And then the text says, Abraham lifted his eyes. And that statement gives a sense of the leap of the heart because he saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns and he realized that trusting God really works, that God really does come through, he does provide. And what God didn't ask Abraham to do, ultimately he did in his son Jesus, who is the sacrifice. Some people have said because of this statement, the Jews, the Jews, that the, the Jews killed Jesus. Have you heard that statement before? I have, I heard it growing up. It's a ridiculous statement because it's, it shows a, a lack of understanding of what the gospel is. Jesus said, no one takes my life. No one. But I lay it down of myself. And if I lay it down, I can take it up again. And he did, because he is the I am. He's the eternal one. How can this be? You aren't even 50 years old. You've seen Abraham? Before Abraham was, I am. I am the eternal one. I am preexistent. I am all those things and more. And if we doubt for one minute that those who heard him there in that temple misunderstood, look what they did. They took up stones to throw at him. This isn't like, you know, hey, go away, Jesus, we don't like you, we're gonna throw rocks at you. No, these were the Jewish leaders, and this was a judicial pronouncement based upon the law of Moses, based upon Leviticus, Leviticus 24, verse 16, which says, he who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death, and the congregation shall stone him. That's what's going on right here in the temple. This climax of confrontation and claims. They pick up stones. But it wasn't Jesus' time. God has a perfect timing. He's never early and he's never late. And so it says, Jesus hid himself. That's certainly miraculous right there. When you're in the middle of a crowd and everybody picks up stones that surround you and trying to kill you and you hide yourself, how does that work? Well, I've wondered about that until I actually experienced something that opened my eyes. I was leading our music team from Jews for Jesus and we were in Jerusalem on Saturday night, downtown Jerusalem which is a great time, there's a lot of crowds, it's after the Sabbath and everybody's walking around and we had our, our set up there with sound equipment and musical instruments and we had a crowd of over 200 people, Israelis, who were just engaged and we, when we finished our concert, every one of us broke into the crowd and we had 20 people around us asking questions, why do you believe, what is this? Except for two guys who approached me and said, we're from Kach. You heard of Kach. Well, Kach is a, is a radical, violent extremist Jewish group in Israel. And they said, we're going to get our friends and metal poles. And if you're here in five minutes, we'll break your legs. Well, I figured it was time to move on. So. <laughs> and so I went around to all the other seven people in the group and I said, come on, guys, we got to get out of here. And slowly, you know, it started happening. But when we were all finally together and getting our equipment and our instruments in our hands, they came back. 
from me to the back of this congregation, this sanctuary, they were looking, and they were looking right at us with our instruments and our Juice for Jesus t-shirts on, and they did not see us. It was the weirdest experience. And we walked down the street, we got in our vehicles, and we drove away, and as we were driving away, I looked back, and I could see them in the midst of that crowd still looking for us. There's no explanation. Jesus hid himself, and I have to say, because we were trusting in him, God hid us, and God does that. He does amazing things when we not just, don't just believe in him, but as Abraham, we let our heart leap, rejoice to see his day. We recognize that he is who he claimed to be, the eternal one. Just a couple of thoughts. Based upon this passage, I think it's clear we need to get to know Jesus for who he really is. Not for who we've believed him to be or who others have said he is. It's particularly true for Jewish people who have heard so many terrible things about Jesus. And it... it, it blinds so many of my family and my friends to the true joy that comes through knowing the Messiah of Israel. But that can happen to anyone. Maybe you're here today and you were raised in a certain way. Or you've had disappointments from your experiences in the church or with other people who claimed to be followers of Jesus and so not really willing to let Jesus be who he really is in your life. And I think that if you're really listening to the words of Jesus when he says, I am, you'd have to agree it's time to get to know him on his terms. We're so quick to Judge And I've made this mistake often where I haven't met somebody, but somebody tells me about them or, or says something about them, and I, I, get a, I get an opinion, you know? But then when I meet them and I find out that something's altogether different about them, I, what, what I heard wasn't true. Now I can get to know them personally. They can become my friend, and I like them. Well, how much more the eternal one let him define his relationship with you, not what you've maybe thought of before. Jesus is so much more than who we've thought him to be. And one more point. I, I think this is especially important for us now. Because Jesus is eternal, we can trust him with our now and our forever. That's the kind of trust that Jesus had, that, that Aletha had in Jesus. And she's experiencing that eternity in his presence. He promises to give us eternal life. And isn't it obvious then that whatever challenges we're facing, what difficulties, what problems in the now, they can also handle that as well? He's worthy of our trust. It's not enough to just believe in God. We have to trust him. 
You know, like you come to that point where you kind of have to let go of your own sense of control. I was thinking about this the other day. All of us probably have had the experience of using a GPS, a global positioning system. And, uh, you know, this, these, these instruments, even though they're so well made now, they're, they're, they're fallible. You know, but there is that experience I've had, maybe you have, where you're, you're following the voice and she's going to tell you or he's going to tell you in a mile, you know, take the exit to the right. You're going, wait a minute, it's not that exit, it's the other one. And you're getting up right to the point where are you going to follow that GPS? And, you know, actually, when you do, you find out that that was right. Have you had that experience? Well, that's kind of like what it is when we have a different GPS, God's positioning system. But it is infallible, you see. And we come up to that point in our lives where we're facing circumstances and challenges and, and God is saying, go this way. Trust me for this. And we don't let go that easily. But when we do, what we discover is that he has our nows, just like he has our forevers. And he's so worthy of our trust. Can we just take that step? In a moment, the band is going to come back and sing a song that challenges us at that very place where God says, you know, you may not want me by your side. But what if, what if you did? What if you allowed me to carry you through? What if you really did trust me for your now as well as for your forever? Because Jesus is much more, so much more than we ever could imagine. We're gonna have our time of giving before the band comes, but let me first pray. Lord, we thank you that in the midst of our difficulties, that there is an eternity that gives us hope for the future, but also for the present. We want to get to know you not based upon our preconceived ideas, but upon your claims that are true. Lord, we worship you as the eternal. And because of that, we trust you for our now as well. We thank you for the example of our sister Aletha, for her trust that has now been realized in your presence. Give us that same hope and that same trust. In Jesus' name, amen.